You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Bobby was one guy that could talk about it. this is in America. This isn't the way we do things. That moral authority is just gone. It's very hard to find that person today. You like history and you like politics? You'll love My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. If you're not subscribed now, go to Apple Podcasts and sign up or Stitcher or many other places. Go to the www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com site. Here's our interview. Chris Matthews is the host of Hardball on MSNBC, author of the well-known book by the same name, and now the author of Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. He joins me today. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem, Bruce. I'm all for it. Let's jump right into it. I mean, these are crazy political times. We're looking for somebody to stand up here. And it seems like you see something missing in today's politics, the compassion, courage, a single messenger maybe that can cut across racial and economic lines. And you see that model in Robert Kennedy. Is that right? Yeah, I think that he was, you know, it strikes me. The book has a beautiful picture on the back of a, a white working class guy. He's got his shirt. He's just dirty faced. He's always been working somewhere hard during the day. Mm. His kid next to him has got his shirt off. He's all dirty faced too. The, the the wife is standing in the background. A woman not well off. You can tell. There's no money there. They're holding salutes to Bobby's funeral train as it goes by. And that sort of patriotic unity across ethnic lines, because there's so many African Americans who are who are just in love with Bobby Kennedy. But that ability to con- connect working people. Maybe in di- from different perspectives, but both united in trusting this guy. They believed he would do what he promised to do. And I think that was something that I don't see a lot of that today. I see people who enjoy this divide between a white and black working class people. I think they want the divide. And, you know, I don't like it. Some on the left, too, who, who know that this is it makes their district seats secure. And uh, I just don't like it. I wish we'd find a. You know, white or black leaders, I think Obama did it to, to some extent, but he was a bit aloof. He wasn't able to really – he said things like these working people cling to their guns and religion. Well, what's the purpose of a put-down like that? And and then, of course, there was Hillary with deplorables, and then there was, of course, Romney with the 47%. Always trying to divide, and I think that's the politics where – you mentioned a minute ago, that's the politics that's being played today. Yeah, not enough getting in, in other people's mind, in other people's shoes. Obama had that Roanoke moment, which, you know, you didn't build this talking to business people. And we understand to an extent what you're talking about. Yeah, the, the roads, the infrastructure, the education system helped you. But, geez, I mean, don't tell small business people you didn't What's build this. What's the point this. of that? You know, you know we, need, we, need, we need those people. We also need the infrastructure. I mean, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, I can't stand the Hollywood, New York mentality of flying across the country, going to the coast you know, and, and looking down over those little circles out there. What's that down there? Well, that's people in their farms. 
And I just wish I, Lincoln was right. Railroads unite the country, create the jobs, put people to work, but somehow get us used to being in each other's faces again. I took my kid, Thomas, we went, we took the train to LA last year, year before, and we just got on the train to New York and we took that beautiful ride up the uh, Hudson to Chicago. That's a beautiful ride through Indiana. And it's like a Curry and Ives scenes, all the snow covered little train stations. And, and then of course you got to take the long ride out to LA uh, on the Southwest cheap. But that time when America was united by rail, that's when days when Kansas City, St. Louis, Cleveland, these cities were all really part of the mix. And, and if you go to China, or I've been lucky to go to China or Japan or Europe, you see that those countries united by rail. It's one simple thing. I just don't know why the Democrats who always stood for public service jobs are so afraid of being called big spenders that they won't do it. Bobby Kennedy was a guy that uh, you referenced, you know, would meet with African-American leaders and activists, oh. helping out Cesar Chavez. And A big part of his life was it was doing what you're afraid to do. So right after he had put the, the bail paid for those kids, those kids that were all being hit by the water cannons when, down in Birmingham during that down there, that big demonstration down there. Hmm. And he had done all that behind the scenes with Harry Belafonte and the labor people. He felt he had to do something. So we went up to see James Baldwin in the apartment in New York, his father's apartment. He had about 20 African-American leaders. They're playwrights, they're, art, they're artists, they're intellectuals. And a young kid there said, I'm not going to fight for this country. This is during the Vietnam War. I'm not going to fight for this country because I'm not an equal citizen in this country. And Bobby's blown away by it, the, the attack. He couldn't believe that there could be someone unpatriotic to his face. And yet, a couple of weeks after that, I mean, that June, right away, I've got tapes of him in the room with Jack Kennedy saying, you've got to come out for civil rights. You've got to give that speech. He was the one pushing Jack. So he he was always teaching himself, and he was growing. He wasn't one of these fat pals who gets it all figured out when they're 25 years old and is saying the same thing when they're 65. You know, he, he did all that stuff with McCarthy. He did that stuff fighting the rackets and the crooks and the labor unions and the other crooks. He goes and works in politics. He does the Freedom Riders. He does the segregation of the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, and fighting George Wallace. He had a lot of learning going on in that period of time. And uh, I think that he understood that a big part of it, as Arthur Schlesinger said, politics is essentially a learning profession. You must constantly expose yourself to the realities of the people you represent, and even if it hurts. And uh, the McCarthy, Joe McCarthy uh, period, I mean, is that a little bit of a dark side of the Kennedys there? They Maybe they didn't stand up enough or were, in fact, friendly with Joe McCarthy? Well, I, I try to get the nuance. Mm -hmm. I know maybe because I'm Irish-American, I get it. It's not a good thing to say, but you got it. The period of 1947 when the Cold War began, and it was real. And there were some communists in the government, not many, but there were some. Alger Hiss, for example, he was a, he he got into the McCarthy bandwagon, and his father was friends. Pat, his sister Eunice's sister, had dated McCarthy. They said he was charming when he hadn't drank too much. So there was the Irish connection, there was the family connection, the ideological connection, and then McCarthy just went completely haywire. He started going after a dentist up in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, calling people communists, uh, claiming there were 205 communists in the State Department. All this bogus, over-the-top stuff. Bobby saw McCarthy destroying not just the people on the witness stand with him before him, but destroying himself. And a lot of it was booze. The guy was drinking too much. He was making outrageous, really cruel, cruel statements. I just something from my book it gets to me. He said he wanted so desperately to be liked. He was sensitive and yet insensitive. He didn't anticipate the results of what he was doing. He was very thoughtful of his friends and yet could be so cruel to others. 
But at the end, Bobby had to write the resolution by the Democrats condemning him. He had to do that, bringing down McCarthy, had a hand in that. And yet, as I say in the book, when McCarthy died, when he drank himself to death, Bobby stuck with him. And he, when he got to the airport, he drove around in the airport three times. He was so distraught. He snuck. He went out to the funeral. He not only went to the funeral, he went to the gravesite, hid in the car because he didn't want to hurt his brother's reputation. But he loved the guy. It's just a phenomenon. Maybe it's like uh, Martin Luther King loving Stanley Levison, the ex-communist he had working for him, but he just wasn't going to break with him. Personal ties sometimes trump good politics and even maybe good judgment. And they represented a common constituency in a way. I, you talk about he never really let go of the white uh, working class or never even thought of doing such yeah. a thing. Well, I was a cop on Capitol Hill, Bruce, and I it was the first time I had ever getting out of the Peace Corps. It was a patronage job, but I had a gun and everything in a uniform and short hair. And I remember just spending a lot of time on the Hill listening to people. It was a great job to sort of get a feel for politics because you're always around watching and uh, I talked to one of the building engineers I got to be friends with at night. We'd be sit around talking about our shift. I was on from 3 to 11. And he said to me that, the, and he was sort of a smart guy, this building engineer. He said, you know, he always thought that Jack Kennedy was the charm and Bobby was the brains, which is sort of true. And then he said, Bobby was the only liberal Democratic senator who regularly greeted, said hello to the Capitol cops. The others were too snooty. And, and, and I got that, and then I wrote that, and I mentioned that somewhere, and a, a guy I know, Andy Manitos, who was an ex, he was a cop too, like Harry Reid was a cop, and Mike Barnacle was a cop. We were all capital cops. He said that he would stop where these guys were like guarding some gate or something or some door. He'd walk up to the, the cop, the capital cop, and lean over his shoulder and see what book he was reading or whether he's looking at playing, reading Playboy or anything. He was just a regular guy. He was not snooty. And that I, I always liked that about Bobby because it said to me what, what, what Jack Newfield said about him. Bobby's people were the waitresses, the cops, the firefighters, the regular people, white and black. And maybe we have a different image than your book on covers of Bobby Kennedy or this kind of Kennedy, because I think some of the image we have of him in history is this kind of ruthless guy helping out his brother, uh, no-holds-barred politics, kind of like a Rahm Emanuel-type figure. I think that's true, too. Bruce, that's... Think about his life. Okay, he only lived to 42 before he was assassinated. From the time he was like 26, well, first he played football. That was pretty rough in those days. But then he get, he runs his brother's campaign for the Senate, runs that in the toughest way. He got his brother elected. and He, he was tough. You didn't mess with him. He wasn't paying anybody. It was all volunteers. As they say in the book, if somebody tried to give him some mouth for that, he kicked him out the door, physically threw him out the door. He was tough. And as Jack said after the end of that campaign, Everybody hated him, but it was the best organization ever seen in that state. Then he goes and he works for McCarthy for three years, or two years rather, often for him and then against him on the Democratic side. And then he fights the, the, the crooks in the labor union and the other, these other gangsters as head of the rackets committee. He's chairman of that for three years. And then he runs his brother's campaign. Then he does all the civil rights work as head of the, the Justice Department. He just had a lot to him. There was, there was the tough guy. The best I could figure out to answer your question was, he was a sweet, young, generous kid growing up. The old man had no respect for that. Mm -hmm. He did not like his kid. He thought it was puny and, and weak. And so he became a tough kid, a tough guy, a tough enforcer for his brother, a jock, and then worse, to make the old man love him. But by the time the old man uh, had his, uh, was taken out of action by his stroke, Bobby begins to change. He, he definitely begins to change after Jack is killed. And 
as a remember the family told me you change your mind from focusing on the villains you've got in your life because they 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 create their own hell and you let that go and you start focusing on the victims and if you look at the pattern of his life he goes from a guy who's always after Jimmy Hoffa or Roy Cohn or whoever Lyndon Johnson to a guy who's focused on the Native Americans there's no votes in that or Chicanos in those days no hardly any votes in that and African Americans in the South who had no votes either. So he was really becoming sort of a Dorothy Day, very liberal Catholic who was concerned with poor people. And that that really made him the man we remember, I think. Because in politics today, someone might describe Robert Kennedy as a very liberal person. But if you think about it in 1968 and you have the Eugene McCarthy run, and there's somebody kind of to the left of him, you know, get out of Vietnam now, uh, and and also willing to run against Lyndon Johnson. Well, I was a McCarthy guy, and, mm-hmm. and then I turned to Bobby because I thought he was the only one that could win. And I think a lot of people were like, I was just talking to Rob Reiner last night, the film director, and he said the same thing on him. You, you went from the guy you liked initially to the guy you thought could win. McCarthy was, imagine, well, Bernie Sanders is not exactly handsome. He's a regular guy, but look looks-wise, he's got that Brooklyn accent and all. McCarthy was this very dry, wry, the kind of college professor, almost like Rachel Maddow, that you'd really want, uh, smart as hell, didn't seem to need you. Uh, he, he wouldn't like play up to the students, but the, the kind of guy you'd want is your, to be your father figure, and, and, and that's the way he was to us. I mean, McCarthy was funny, aloof, charming, as I said, good-looking. He came across as this, where do they find this guy? And he said the war was awful, and I'm going to stop it now. And I'm telling you, when you had your father mad at you because you didn't want to go in the war, Mm. and a lot of us were that age putting up with that, along comes this guy, your father's age, and he says the war is awful, and I'm going to stop it. And you go, wow, I like this guy. And as you said, he was the first one to take on Johnson. Oh, yeah, the first one to take on Johnson. And and there were people that were committed uh, McCarthyites, you know, on the left side of McCarthyite in this case, uh, in 68, who didn't jump on Bobby. You know, they Bobby's bandwagon, they said, you know, some of those voters uh, almost look like the Sanders voters of the last election. Some of them never jumped on and said, hey, it's too late. You lost your chance. It's also it's also different ethnically and um and Howard Lowenstein was like the superstar that really started it all. He went to UNC, University of North Carolina, where I went in grad school. He was sort of the guy that got it going. The intellectual left was really powerful back then, the west side of New York, if you will. Uh, it was uh, a really intellectually energized part of McCarthy. And then Bobby came along, and he had to bring in the, the, the minorities and the, sort of the Irish, Italian, Polish, regular ethnic Democrats in, in Indiana, he had to bring all them aboard. At the same time, he was the only, to be blunt about it, white guy who could walk before a group of African Americans in a tough part of town in Indianapolis after dark and stand before them all by himself and say, Martin Luther King has just been killed. And they didn't know it until he told them. And I'm telling you, even today, find me the liberal that could do that. It, the, the, the sense of moral authority to be able to walk into a room or out of, standing on a truck before a bunch of people who didn't know the king was dead, and he had to tell them that some white guy had killed. It, it's just, it took moral uh, strength that I don't think many people have even today and on, the race, on the racial issue. It's just overpowering when you look at that speech. Yeah, an incredible moment in the, in, in the Indiana speech, and he does win that primary. Yeah. He does go on to then win California right before his death. 
Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. A reminder to go to the www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com site. We've got a link to Chris Matthews' book on Bobby Kennedy, plus links to more information about some of the historical events we're talking about. And on the premium extra podcast for as little as $2 a month, This week's episode features Eugene McCarthy and the primary of 1968. Think he would have, uh, if that had not happened, think he would have got the nomination? I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, sure he could have. Mm. Something could have happened. But the trouble is, this is before the McGovern Commission and all these changes that allowed primaries to rule the day. Back then, guys like uh, James Tate, the mayor of Philly, had power, and they were all with Humphrey. You know, they stuck with Humphrey. I think it was interesting in the book I brought out that just in the hours before he died, he told Richard Goodwin, his very brilliant speechwriter, he said, go, and he was had been with McCarthy, he said, go tell Gene that if he'll drop out of the race now, I'll make him Secretary of State, because we can't win if he stays in the race because they'd be splitting the anti-war vote. Meanwhile, Humphrey would be grabbing the, uh, the more conservative Democratic vote. And my God, the anti-war position was still unpopular then. I mean, everybody forget, well, not everybody was around them, but I was. And I remember there was that moment when he goes on to the night show and Harry Belafonte is, is hosting it, guest hosting it. And he said, Harry's trying to get him to run for president. He says, you know, most people are against my position on this issue. Most people were for Johnson and the war, even at the time of um, Tet when it looked like we were definitely not going to win. So if you split the anti-war vote and you confront the uh, pro-war vote, if you will, led by Humphrey and all the Johnson forces and all the sort of big city political types like Dick Daly, I'm not sure it looked that good. In fact, I think Kennedy might have lost, um, this is tricky, but New York and the West Side, the Jewish vote was very strong for McCarthy. He was an intellectual. They really looked up to him. And I think he would have had a tough time even a couple weeks later in New York, because I was up there at that time looking at all the McCarthy signs. 
And a lot of these local guys, a lot of them Jewish, would be running, you know, Richie, uh, Fred Richmond McCarthy, they have like McCarthy's name sandwiched between some local names. They really thought they could ride him to victory. So it would have been a real tough fight. But again, Bobby Kennedy might have shaken the whole thing loose because there was such excitement coming out of it. It only lasted an hour, right, Bruce? It's a sad story of politics, but I do think so many people think, oh, because he died, he would have been president otherwise, but it would have been a tough road to hoe, no doubt. Yeah, I think so. When you said a few moments ago, I think that what's missing today is any sense of uh, moral authority. I mean, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he said, we can't bomb Cuba and kill everybody. That's what the Japanese did to us. Americans don't launch sneak attacks on other countries. Imagine if Trump said that today. People say, where'd that come from? You have a moral statement to make here, Trump? You talk about morality? I mean, Bobby was one guy that could talk about it and say, this isn't America. This isn't the way we do things. And that's that sense of of uh, appealing to the better nature in people like he did when King was shot. That moral authority is just gone. I don't know. Who can stand on, who can stand on television tonight or radio and come on and say, this is what I believe the truth is. It's very hard to find that person today. He might have uh, gotten, a, if not 68, it might have been 72. And then if not, uh, he could have lived as long as perhaps Ted. I mean, we're into 2009. We could have had this figure in American politics that, that bridges bridges a lot of different sides. Who knows what would have, you know, how it would have worked out. He'd be 92. You're right, Bruce. He'd be 92 today. Yeah, we still could still could have him. Uh, one of the things that Richard Goodwin said about him that I found interesting from this from your book, it, talking about the Democratic position and liberal positions today versus where he was, he was against concentrated power and wanted to use government to break up that and to fight unjust privilege. And I think there's a big difference between that, you know, the unjust privilege that we should be spending our time on. And I wonder if 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 we gotten away from that a bit, or if, if at least like the left has gotten away from it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he was a socialist in any stretch of the imagination. And I think he was a small government guy. Like, he did think that welfare was not good for people. He thought it created self a bad dependence on the government. And, you know, we've seen that dynamic where generation, two or three generations in a row have depended on public assistance. It's not a good thing. It's not taking you anywhere. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you know, and I think he, he definitely didn't like that. He didn't like big government. He would never have been a great society kind of guy. You know, he wanted local community control of issues. That was his big thing in bed style. Local people getting involved in in running these programs. I think he was a real – I think you're getting at it. He was a skeptic about the big government solution to everything. 
and I've never heard him being anti-capitalist. But there is one thing you noted. He he didn't like people that sat on their butts, uh, rich people who just didn't want to do anything for the country. I think he didn't have much sympathy for them, and I I think he wanted people to get involved. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that's the good part. I mean, I know so much in the book. You talk about the influence that Joe P. Kennedy had on Robert Kennedy, and a negative one, really, and uh, pushing yeah. him so much. But maybe that's the slight positive, is that Joe Kennedy didn't allow his uh, sons to just sit there. You're so right, and I, I don't give him that much credit, but I should, yeah. I guess. He didn't. He once said to Teddy Kennedy, "If uh, you don't have to do anything in your life. In fact, Jack once said that all Teddy wanted to do is chase women in the south of France. That's all he wanted to do. But uh, which wouldn't be a bad thing to do, actually, if he weren't married. You know, it'd be fun. Right. But uh, he uh, he um, he said, but I won't be spending much time with you if you do. Yeah. You know, if you want your dad around, you got to be doing something important, and then I'll be around you. Otherwise, I won't. And I think that was probably the message he sent. But he's particularly tough on, t- on Bobby. Bobby was shorty. I think. Little dispute on that, but I think he was five eight. He wasn't a tall guy like his two brothers. You can see it in the pictures. He was slight. He, he's one of these guys because he is slight. He became very fit because he really worked out and everything. But the old man called him a runt and basically treated him as uh, almost irrelevant. He was putting all his focus on Joe Jr. until he got killed in the war, and then Jack. Those were the guys that were going to be his champions. The guys who were going to be president. And Bobby sort of was left out, and I think that was one reason, I'm just speculating in the book, that Bobby understood what it was like to be left out and overlooked. And I think that's where he got some of his empathy from. And you, you do know. notice a change right around the time that Joe Kennedy has the stroke, maybe 61. Oh, yeah. Where he, he starts getting more involved in civil rights and other issues. I mean, country's changing at the time, too. Well, Bobby also became head of the family around that time. And, uh, Jack didn't take over, he did. Bobby was much more the uh, Potter familias. I mean, he had all mm. the kids himself. He liked kids. He uh, he became sort of the head of the family there. He, he took more time. And I think uh, it was a good thing to have Joe out of the way, to be blunt about it. I don't think he was a good influence on the son at that at that age. I talk a lot about Reagan on the, on the program. I had a whole series on Reagan. And uh, there is an odd connection that many people probably aren't aware of, uh, that at least some of the Reagan friends speculate that the whole reason he originally ran, you know, he is governor of California in 68, originally ran for president was really because he was angry at the Kennedys, angry at Bobby Kennedy in particular, feels that, uh, you know, he was fired at GE because of that. I don't know how much truth there is to that. Do you think that's true? I don't know how I, much I, truth. I, I grew up with that. Look, there's a lot of things going on there. Yeah. Uh, the head of GE at the time was Reagan's patron and he was a conservative. He liked his conservative politics. Mm. A new guy came in, he didn't. The other thing is that the show, and I watched GE Theater religiously. I, I watched it for most of its nine-year run. It was like number three one year. I really liked Reagan as a personality. I liked the guy. I loved the fact he was in the, uh, the Newt Rodney movie and all that. He His numbers were crushed by Bonanza. And when Bonanza went on at 9 o'clock Sunday night, the hour-long show, I mean, it killed him. So I'm in the business of television. I know all about ratings. I see ratings every afternoon here. I know how powerful they are with our bosses. And uh, I would always bet that they follow the money when it comes to television. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's all about the number of people watching your show defines your success. And uh, with Bonanza, everybody watched it. And that killed it's hard to prove that, and who knows about it, but it's it was in his head. It was in Reagan's head. I mean, Ron Reagan Jr. notes that he talked about it. You know, the accounts of the Reagan friends. Once Bobby Kennedy was killed, Reagan's run for the presidency 
you know, became what it is today, a forgettable one. It just, the energy was drained from him. Well, he, he did, he did, it. He, he ran a last minute campaign. Mm-hmm. He went down to Miami for the convention and it was, uh, Nixon had already basically wrapped it up. Nixon already had, had the thing pretty much wrapped up because he had Strom Thurmond and the pretty conservative right of the Republican party already locked in, uh, with the Southern strategy and all. I think, Reagan, I think it's important to point out that Reagan ran three times. He ran 68, 76, and 80 before he won. And uh, he was running for president from the time he was governor of California. But I do think he got in that race too late to win. Nixon had it locked. Because Nixon had done in 66 what nobody else had done, taken credit for victory. 56, I think, Republican pickups in the House. And Nixon had campaigned for those guys. And uh, he had come back from the dead that's really an amazing, an amazing campaign to go from losing the California race and saying you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. And then to go back and move to New York, reposition himself as a national figure and then uh, picking up all the pieces in, in 56, uh, 66. Pat Buchanan has a great account of that, of what happened. Yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 it Nixon was formidable in 68, even with his kind of reputation. And uh might have been tough to beat, even if Kennedy secured the Democratic nomination. I mean, he was... He was going after that silent majority, but I, but I suppose that Kennedy might have been better than a Humphrey in reaching out to the, to the Nixon voters. That would have been interesting because, you know, Jack Kennedy was the one guy that could beat Nixon in 60. All the Catholic voters would have been for Nixon. They, he had always gotten a great Catholic vote. And that huge percentage of the elector went out and went, shifted over to Kennedy. And Nixon knew that he could, Adlai Stevenson wouldn't have gotten any of those votes. And Johnson wouldn't have gotten any of those votes. But Jack Kennedy, an Irish Catholic, was going to get those votes. So, and if Bobby Kennedy ran, I do have that scene in the book. Nixon's at the Hotel Benson out in Portland, Oregon. And Bobby's announcing that Saturday morning, March 16th, the day before St. Patrick's Day. And Nixon's watching Kennedy announce on television. And Nixon talks about this weird thing. He says, forces will be unleashed. We cannot imagine. This is going to go bad. And Nixon's understanding how the Kennedy name can be uh, amazingly charismatic, but also it also upsets certain people, disturbs a certain element in the country. Like it did in Dallas. We have people that they're just disturbed by it. And, um, and he, he he wasn't exactly predicting the assassination, but pretty close. There's still a little bit of that today. The Kennedys can be mixed. There's the the Romanesque vision of them and the family and the and the and and what everybody aspires to in politics. And then there's a little bit of uh, the father and uh, maybe uh, as a symbol of p- political manipulation and what might happen in the 1960 election and all those stories. And well, you know what? I, I hear those stories and I go, yeah, you're right. And I and I, I wrote an earlier book about Nixon Kennedy's rivalry. And uh, there's no doubt some dead people voted in Chicago in 1960. But to say the election was stolen, you would have to argue that um, the, the Texas was also stolen right. and other states or New Mexico, a bunch of others. It's not as simple as that. And by the way, there's really it's hard to believe that Texas would have been stolen. You got to run it in 68. Humphrey. Texas was still yellow dog Democrat. I mean, Humphrey won in 68 in Texas. Jimmy Carter won Texas in 76. It wasn't some, you know, uh, down the line Republican state back then. It just wasn't. And it was still a lot of old Bourbon Democrats who uh, hung in there for the party. Yeah, and that, that might have helped Kennedy had he run. Uh, the book is uh, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. The author, of course, is Chris Matthews. He has joined me today. Please 
Go out and get Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. I highly recommend it. A lot of good stories in there. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. You're great, and you're the first guy to interview me on this book, so oh. <laughs> thank you so much. You, you beat the bit. This is the Cherokee Strip, and you've raced across it with your covered wagon. Thank you, sir, um, very much. And we would like to thank Chris Matthews for appearing on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. It's a big boost for our podcast. Thanks to Simon & Schuster for helping out setting this up. If you like My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, consider the premium podcast. One of the topics that we talked about with Chris is Eugene McCarthy and that senator's challenge to Lyndon Johnson and then the primary between him and Robert Kennedy and how that caused complications for Robert Kennedy and what he was trying to do. But we couldn't get into too much detail in such a brief interview with Chris Matthews, so there's more about that on the premium podcast. Go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, and we're going to have a link to that, plus more information about Bobby Kennedy. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.